Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are um, in 1 Corinthians 9 once again this morning. I just want to read the section that we'll be looking at by way of review and extension this morning in verses 15 to 23. Uh, we're, we're really taking this whole chapter as a united whole because there really all is one, there's one main idea that Paul's trying to get across, but we are breaking it down into smaller and smaller parts. And uh, so Paul says this here in verse 15, he says, speaking of his rights as an apostle, I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, for several Sundays, we've been studying through this whole section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we have been discussing this issue of the believer's freedom, the Christian freedom. As we move through chapter 9, as we have for the last several Sundays, we see Paul doing a couple of things. One, he is defending his apostleship against those who have um, questioned his credentials and his authority. And second, we see him describing we said mature Christian discipleship. He's describing what it means to be a mature Christian. He's revealed to us what makes him tick, not simply as an apostle with a capital A, but just as a, as a mature Christian and as a leader in the church. Paul discloses how he approached the Christian life, and he calls us at the end of this whole section to follow in his footsteps. So his, his life as a whole, and particularly Paul's understanding and approach to the believer's freedom, that becomes a, a template, a, a paradigm, a, a way for us to pattern our lives for the glory of God. And he does this, we said, by moving, especially in chapter 9, by moving back and forth between a number of different themes. Uh, he, he, he uses this, sketches out this model of Christian uh, freedom, how we're to think about it, by bouncing between the theme of his rights, uh, his restraint of those rights, his Christian race, and the reward that he anticipates at the end of his earthly life. So in verses 1 to 14, through these, uh, this barrage of rhetorical questions, he puts everyone on notice to tell them that, yes, he is an apostle, and as a true apostle, he is entitled to material support as a leader in the church among, those, among whom those he labored with. Um, that said... It was necessary because they were pointing to his, 
his decision to pay his own way as some kind of scandalous proof that he wasn't an apostle. They say, see, we're not supporting him like we are some, maybe some of these other men, so he must not be a real apostle at the end of the day. Paul rebukes and he rebuts that. And having sufficiently established his credentials and his right to support, he pivots in verse 12 and verses 15 to 23 to this whole theme of his restraint. So 1 to 14, for the most part, is about his rights. 15, uh, 12 and verses 15 to 23 zeroes in on his restraint of those rights. And we've broken the text down into three parts uh, last Sunday, we, we, we saw Paul restraint, Paul's restraint of his rights, that it rises out of a concern for the progress of the gospel. We saw that in verse 12. It is, uh, his restraint of his rights is compelled by the gospel itself in verses 15 to 18. And as we're going to see this morning, it works itself out by his accommodation for the gospel with different groups of people. And so, Having laid out that he is an apostle, having defended that, and that as an apostle and as a leader in the church that he's entitled to support, he is able then to point to his example, his own personal life, and say, see, I have chosen not to make use of these things for the, uh, for the benefit of the church. Verse 12, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Why has Paul chosen to restrain himself in these things? Why has he chosen to forego their support? He's done so because he is concerned it will put an unnecessary obstacle in front of the message of the gospel going forward from his lips. When and being faced with that op, the option of receiving support or not receiving support with a, with a choice between his rights and others hearing the gospel, we understand, and Paul makes clear, that there is no real choice for him at all. He cannot receive that support. Anything that might get in the way of someone else hearing the gospel from his lips Anything that would stand in the way of that, this good news of Christ's pardoning grace freely bestowed upon those who trust him, anything that gets in the way of that, it must be jettisoned. And, and that is easy for him to lay aside. It is no difficulty whatsoever for him to do that. He is, uh, his restraint of his rights, we said, rises out of his concern for the progress of the gospel. But Paul wants to dispel any notion that he's fishing for financial support by bringing that up or talking about how he's entitled to these things. And so last Sunday in verses 15 to 18, he described and argued for his right to give up support, that he has a right to not take support. And he shows that his his restraint of those, that privilege is, um, is actually compelled by the gospel itself. He says, I've used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. He's like, don't misunderstand me. I am not bringing this to you because I want you to start supporting me. He says, no, that's not it at all. He feels so strongly about it at the end of verse 15. He's tripping over his own words. He says, it would be better for me to die. And then he kind of stops mid-sentence and he says, no one will make my boast an empty one. Not at all. And so he knows he's entitled to support, but for him to take that support would mean to, in his mind, hinder the progress of the gospel. And that's such an odious thing to him. That's so, that's so very much against what he wants 
that words are literally spilling out of his mouth, and he's saying, no one is going to nullify my boast. And we define what his boast is by first what it isn't. We said it is not just preaching the gospel. He's not boasting in the fact that he preaches the gospel. He says, woe is to me if I don't preach the gospel. He says, this is like, this is what I have to do. He, can't, he cannot boast simply by doing what God has, by divine design, commanded him to do. He said he is one under compulsion. So, and then in verse 17, he just reiterates that same point. He makes this case, he says, if I do this preaching of the gospel freely or voluntarily, well, then I have a reward. But as it is, I am, I'm doing so against my will, meaning not of my own free choice. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. That is the point of verse 17. This is not the case for him. He is one under compulsion. He is Christ's slave. He has to preach as an apostle, as one commissioned by Christ, because at the end of the day, he has nothing uh, he's doing nothing, and he has nothing to boast in because at the end of the day, he's just doing what God has commanded him to do as, a, as an unworthy slave. So if preaching the gospel is in his boast, what then, he says in verse 18, is my reward? What is that thing that I get to, to claim as a result of my apostolic ministry? And what he says there is my reward, my pay is to preach, when I preach the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, without charge. Paul says, my pay is to receive no pay. My, my reward, my boast, is to operate from a position of earthly weakness and work with my own hands to pay my own way so as not to slow down the forward progress of the gospel. That is my reward. It's the thing that I that I'm not compelled to do, that I choose to do of my own free will, that is my reward. And I do that, he says, so as not to make full use or literally not to misuse my right in the gospel. He didn't want to be accused of preaching for money. He didn't want to be like so many of the wise men of the day who kind of peddled their wisdom to the masses as a way to sort of enrich themselves. He never wanted that to stand in the way of his gospel ministry. He wanted the free gospel to be made free of charge so that all the more would hear. So that's where we ended last Sunday. He is under compulsion by the free gospel to freely restrain his rights for the greater progress thereof. So that leads us to the final point because we never really got there last week. And that comes to us in verses 19 to 23. And that is Paul's accommodation of his life for the gospel. Now, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. When I say his accommodation for the gospel, I don't mean his accommodation of the gospel. The gospel is not being, the message is not being accommodated. The message is not being changed. What's changing is his behavior, his, his stance. He didn't stand on his privileges. He didn't stand on his own dignity as an apostle or his rights. He didn't adapt the message to appease a different audience. Rather, he adapted himself to the position of those whom he ministered to in a wholehearted determination to see them one to Christ. Very important. Some 
may have accused Paul of being wishy-washy, that in, you know, he was acting one way in one context and another way in another context. Some may have indicted Paul for being a, a flip-flopper. Some might have criticized him for being a, a man without conviction because he was constantly adjusting himself depending on the context. And indeed, Paul's own conduct, which he describes in these verses, was likely being um, thrown in his face. It was being used against him. You know, you who were set free from the bondage of your Judaism, you who, who walked away from apostate, false religion, went ahead and now you're conducting yourself like a Jew? You're submitting yourself to dietary restrictions and special observances and various customs that the Jews still cling to in their ignorance? You who are always talking about living separate from the world and and um, you're accommodating yourself to the Gentiles, eating what they eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. You who claim that an idol, as we saw in chapter 8, is nothing and food doesn't commend us to God, are bending over backwards to comply with the weaker peculiarities of all our brothers and sisters who are still operating from maybe a deficient knowledge of God's word. You know, this, this, this is what they were kind of implying. And Paul's answer to all of those accusations is, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. He says in verse 19, I have made myself a slave to all that I may win the more. Verse 22, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Now, all of this, as we read it, prompts several questions. Uh, and, you know, because Paul has been saying for the last chapter that all of us are free in Christ. We are free. We saw that in chapter 8 and verse 8. Is we are neither, food will not commend us to God. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't help or hurt us. Uh, verse 1, he says, am I not free? This is part of his rhetorical argument, meaning free in Christ. If Paul constantly, so the question is, if Paul constantly accommodates his behavior to his audience, wherever he is, in what sense is he truly operating from a position of freedom and liberty? Furthermore, it begs the question, if we're constantly subjecting ourselves to the scruples, or meaning the, those things we, that others find morally um, questionable, that's what I mean by the word scruples. Um, if we're constantly subjecting ourselves to others' moral uh, peculiarities and the laws of men, aren't we turning our freedom back into a yoke of slavery? That's a legitimate question that, that comes out of that. Wouldn't it be better to stand unflinchingly on our freedom and preach the gospel, trusting in the Spirit's work, than to constantly be shifting, depending on the context, to those that the gospel, uh, that the God, you know, to all these different people, and that the gospel set us free from. In other words, should we model the freedom we have in Christ by not compromising, not adjusting our behavior? Those are all legitimate questions that are come up, and these are questions that no doubt the Corinthians struggled with and wrestled with, and and many in our churches today still struggle and wrestle with these questions. How do we think about them? To help us answer those questions, I think it's important that we properly 
understand the nature of our freedom in Christ. So that's what I want us to do for the next few moments here. I'm going to ask you, once again, to put your thinking caps on for me. To, uh, because I think the issue of the believer's freedom has become muddied in a, in a present-day context by two things. One is careless definitions and imprecise, imprecise distinctions. Careless definitions and imprecise distinctions. Whenever we're careless with terms and distinctions, theological and practical errors have the perfect conditions to take root. Doesn't mean they have to, but they, they have the perfect conditions to take root. And that's what I believe has the potential to happen on this whole issue of Christian freedom. So that's, that's what I want to do. So I'm going to ask a series of questions here as we work through this topic, and then we'll tie it all together at the end. One of the defining issues of the Reformation, right, the, that period of time where, where the Protestant Reformation took hold in the uh, 16th century and 17th century, one of the defining issues of the Reformation was this whole issue of freedom of the conscience, the freedom of the conscience. The issue was thought through and written on extensively by men like Martin Luther, men like Calvin, and even men like, uh, you probably don't think of him as being a, a substantial person in the Reformation, but he was, William Perkins, who was part of the Church of England and is really the father of the Puritan movement. Uh, their work and the church's reclamation of this important biblical truth of Christian liberty or freedom of conscience, I believe is at risk of being buried and lost again by God's people through our present fixation with individual rights, religious freedom, and conscientious objections. So what I want us to do is to reclaim, reform ourselves to the biblical notion of Christian freedom that was reclaimed and reformed during the Reformation, the church's tradition isn't, upper, isn't the um, defining thing, but it's not nothing either. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we operating with this common understanding of Christian freedom and conscience that has been the case for literally hundreds of years of church history since the Reformation? So I just want to ask a series of questions and then answer them. First, what is the nature? The first question is this, what is the nature of the conscience? What is it? Uh, William Perkins, again, father of uh, Puritan, the Puritan movement, defines the conscience this way. He says, the conscience, quote, is of a divine nature is a, it is, and is a thing placed by God in the midst between him and man as an arbitrator to give sentence and to pronounce either with man or against man with respect to God. I know that's kind of a mouthful. But Calvin fills out that understanding and clarifies it a little bit in his institutes when he defines the conscience and makes this important distinction between the outward forum and the inward uh, forum of the conscience. Those are the terms he uses. The outward forum refers to the outward works that we may be constrained to do or not do, the things that we would, we would do in privileges in our lives. The forum of the conscience... Calvin says, is internal. 
It has to do with our inward awareness of divine judgment. It is a witness which does not let them hide their sins, but arraigns them as guilty, he says. So basically, the conscience is a God-given internal capability which testifies to one's guilt or innocence before God. That is what a conscience, the conscience is biblically. And we see this described um, in Romans chapter 2, is kind of the, the, the go-to text in verses 14 to 16, where Paul says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, so it's internal, and their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So the conscience is an internal, God-given accuser or defender of one's conduct before God. Again, um, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 2, the writer of Hebrews describes... Uh, well, he says here, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So it speaks of this internal, God-given capacity to recognize one's guilt or innocence before God. 1 Peter 3.21 talks about um, the, how baptism is a public testimony of a good conscience before God, that we are not guilty, or in that, for the believer, not guilty before God. So the, so the question is, what is the nature of the conscience? And, and I think um, looking to these men and others and even the biblical witness, we see clearly what it is. So that, uh, the second question is this, in what sphere does the conscience operate? And I think you kind of know what the answer is, but we're just strictly speaking, strictly speaking, we can only have a good conscience before God. All right? Again, make note of my term. Strictly speaking, we can only have a good conscience before God. Broadly speaking, we can have a good conscience toward men as well. And Paul actually says that in Acts 24. He says, I, I strive as much as possible to have a good conscience before God and before men. But Calvin clarifies that when Paul speaks of having a good conscience before men, he's really referring not to the actual conscience of guilt or innocence before men, but the fruit of a good conscience toward God that spills over into our interactions with human beings. So properly speaking, strictly speaking, we can only have a good conscience before God. So freedom of conscience, strictly speaking, is in relation to God not other people. Make a note of that. Liberty, strictly speaking, is in relationship to God, not other people. We can lose or voluntarily set aside our earthly rights and privileges, and our Christian freedom is not affected in one, uh, one iota. God alone sets the boundaries... And our conscience is duty-bound to his 
word, we answer to him and him alone. A million circumstances in our lives can change every minute, but if God's revealed will is unchanging, and it is, and we belong to him through faith in Christ, then our conscience is free, and that can never be taken away from you or from me. So the conscience, strictly speaking, operates in relationship to God. So the third question is this, who then can bind the conscience? Who can bind the conscience? Because the conscience, and because the conscience involves an inward awareness of divine judgment or innocence, and because the conscience operates, strictly speaking, in relationship to God, the conscience then cannot, notice the word cannot, meaning is not able to be bound to the outward commands of men. Because the outward commands of men are not able to touch the inward governing of the soul. The only way the commands of men can bind our conscience is where they overlap with the commands of God. So, for instance, if, uh, if the government makes a law that says murder is um, a capital offense, well, we, we're, we are conscience-bound to that reality because God's law says that murder is a violation of his law. Uh, embezzlement, in most countries, is a violation not only of man's law, but of God's law not to steal. Right? We, we understand that. So we're conscience-bound by those laws of men where they overlap with the laws of God. Calvin argued that neither government nor church leaders nor any other person ultimately can bind the conscience, and none of them can bind the conscience precisely because they exercise no power over the conscience. Only God can bind the conscience. Now, it doesn't mean men don't try, but I mean, when I say they cannot, I mean they are not able ultimately to do so. God alone has the authority to bind the conscience because God alone, not man, exercises power over our conscience. It's an important distinction to make. Isaiah 33, verse 22 says, for the Lord is our judge, and the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. And the point he's making there, and Isaiah is showing that the power of life and death, the power of guilt or innocence, lies with the one who has jurisdiction over the soul. That is God alone. So, we can be free while simultaneously surrendering or giving up our rights. Eating or not eating certain foods, or watching or not watching certain media, or observing or not observing certain days are all outward acts, and therefore they do not restrict the Christian's liberty. I am no less free before God if I choose not to eat certain foods in conformity with another person's conscience, scruples, since it only binds my outward acts. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, food is nothing. 
or in Romans 14, he says the same thing. Food is nothing. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking right, but righteousness, uh, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. And, so he, and then he goes on to say, we're not disadvantaged if we abstain, nor are we advantaged if we partake. So the command by Paul, for the, and, and likewise in Romans 15, the command by Paul to, for the strong to bear with the weak and not please ourselves, that is not a, undermining true freedom of conscience. So that leads to a fourth question. Must we then comply with government laws and man's scruples? Are we obligated to comply with government laws and man's scruples? Since specific government laws or even conformity to another person's scruples don't bind the conscience on their own, the question is, are we obligated to comply with them? And the answer is, more often, most often, yes. Yes. Perkins, William Perkins points out an important caveat, that God's general commandment to obey magistrates binds our consciences to them when they legislate matters of indifference. So our conscience isn't bound by the laws themselves, but by the higher law, Romans 13, for example, to honor those in authority and to submit to them. So this is why you should obey speed limits. And this is why you should pay uh, your taxes. And this is why you, uh, and it's perfectly legal and right for a Christian to submit to insurance requirements. We, have, we had to provide a certain uh, coverage of insurance to, to lease this space by law. Uh, they, couldn't, they could deny us a lease if we didn't take those things. Uh, it's why we have, you know, follow building codes and labor laws and reporting requirements and licensing and professional certifications and all those things, right? Those are matters of indifference. And Perkins continues, now, such kind of laws have no virtue or power in themselves to constrain the conscience. Rather, they bind only by virtue of a higher commandment, and that is, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. So when it comes to complying with government mandates and laws that, ma that legislate matters of indifference, we have an obligation, not because the laws themselves bind our conscience, but because we have a higher law that we operate under, which is to submit to those in authority. Same as it relates to other believers. When it comes to the scruples of others, again, we are obligated to accommodate ourselves to those things which they view as morally questionable, not because those things themselves bind our conscience. Rather, our conscience is bound by God's higher command that we love one another and not cause offense. We abstain not ultimately for man's sake, but for God's. We don't abstain because we believe it's necessary for God to accept us, nor do we abstain or, or conform our practice because we believe God's word necessarily commands it, which is the case with Paul. He says, I, I am one under the law, but not under the law myself. In other words, he doesn't think God requires him to do these things. He says, we abstain so as not to offend our brother or sister whom we want to build up. Or, in the case of Paul, in this text, we don't want to offend the unbeliever with whom we hope to share the gospel. 
So that takes us to um, no doubt, as I, as even though we've defined the nature of conscience and distinguished what the freedom of the conscience can and can't do and how we're to conduct ourselves, there's probably still a part of you saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There, there might be this instinctual unease that rises up in your hearts, as it does in mine at times, when you hear someone say that the government or church leaders or other people cannot bind the conscience. And I think the reason that happens is because some in our churches have made, not necessarily intentionally, but made the error of equivocating on this term of freedom or liberty. Equivocation is a fallacy of language in which the same term is used two or more different ways through the course of an argument. And we have a concept in our mind. We, have, um, we use a term, meaning a word or a phrase, to express that concept. To have a concept in your mind is to know what it means. So if you have the concept of a chair in your mind, um, you know, something that has four legs that one person can sit on. We use the English word chair to express that concept of something that you sit on. We understand that. Now, if your mind holds two meanings, then you are holding two concepts, not one. Does that make sense? So going back to the concept of a chair, you could be thinking about a piece of furniture that you sit in has four legs meant for one person. Or you could just as well be thinking about a concept, the concept, the idea of a person who presides over a meeting. Where we get into trouble is when we may only be using one term to express two or more concepts. When we do that, we are walking into the minefield of equivocation. And the minefield of equivocation is where clear communication understanding blow up and die. For example, you may use the term, I don't have it here, you may use the term, the word pen, to refer to both the writing instrument or a pig enclosure, right? It's the same term with two totally different meanings. The first concept is just what it is and nothing else. The second concept of a pig enclosure is just what it is and nothing else. Why am I bringing this up? Because the same term, freedom or liberty, I believe is being used to express two distinct concepts and it's muddying up the waters. People have been using the same term, freedom, or this term, liberty, to express both the concept of civil liberty and Christian freedom. But they're two distinct concepts. They're distinct. Civil liberty, freedom, refers to the protection of individual rights that we have from undue interference by the government or others. Civil liberties govern and order our lives in, an outward, in our outward actions. Christian liberty, on the other hand, refers to our guilt or innocence before God. Christian liberty, as we have seen, is a spiritual and holy freedom purchased by Christ. We are free before God because, and we have been given a good conscience by the justifying grace of Jesus Christ through faith in his Son. That 
is Christian liberty. Christian liberty governs and orders the inward soul. If we confuse and conflate these concepts, what we end up doing, whether we intend to or not, is imply that our social or civic freedom is a part of the gospel, which it is not. Civil liberties, and and I would agree with the statement, are good and worth advocating for and protecting. But confusing such civil liberties with freedom of conscience of a Christian mixes civil freedom and the gospel of freedom. It's not clear. The gospel promises freedom, yes, but not freedom from government interference and not freedom from our duties and responsibilities to one another. And and Perkins himself anticipated this error 400 years ago when he wrote that, quote, Christian freedom is spiritual first to put a difference, he says, between it and civil liberty, which stands in outward and bodily freedom and privileges. So he affirms, as Calvin does and Luther and many others, that Christian liberty is not civil liberty. Christian liberty is spiritual, not physical. It rises and falls in the realm of the inward man, not the outward acts. And Perkins reiterates that the spiritual nature of Christian liberty is important because, secondly, he says, to confute the Jews who look for earthly liberty by the Messiah and the Anabaptists who were the kind of the, uh, the blow it up, tear it down kind of folks of the Reformation who imagine, he says, a freedom from all authority of magistrates in the kingdom of Christ. He points out that that kind of libertarianism is, has nothing in Christian liberty. So, Christian liberty does not equate to liberal rights in civil society. Both are good. Both are worth defending and and fighting for, but they're not the same thing. And my concern is that when some Christians talk about Christian freedom, insisting on their rights, what they're really advocating for is a preservation of their civil liberties which is a nakedly political exercise, but we are dressing it up in religious clothing by saying that compliance with certain laws or accommodating, even accommodating ourselves to the scruples of others in the church, they're saying that that binds our conscience and thus absolves us of a responsibility to do so. But we have to understand, unless someone says we must do this or that to be saved then outward forms of human laws or accommodation to weaker brothers or sisters cannot bind our conscience, meaning it's not possible to do so unless we let it, unless we think that's what God's word commands us to do in and of itself. So whether it be government or church leaders or other Christians or even unbelievers, none of them, none of them can force you or I to look elsewhere than the the gospel of Christ for our salvation, right? In the inward person. And this was the issue with the Reformation, with Rome, because they said you had to do these things to have salvation. And the Reformers rose up and said, no, 
No, you are adding to the word of God. You are perverting the gospel. And those things, these ecclesial laws and things that you have set in place, they cannot force us to look elsewhere than the faith in Christ alone for our salvation. And they cannot bind the conscience. So those different groups can only constrain how we order our lives in the civil sphere, limiting, for example, the speed at which you drive or the number of people that we seat in a building or the kinds of food that we might eat around other Christians or the kinds of movies we might watch or fill in the blank. To use Christian freedom as a cover to insist on our individual rights to do as we want is to redefine Christian freedom as civil liberty which is a totally different concept. Calvin said this, Now it is the duty of Christian people to keep the ordinances that have been established according to this rule with a free conscience. So it's interesting that he connects this duty to submit and to follow. He says you can do that with a free conscience. Indeed, without superstition, yet with a pious and ready inclination to obey, not to despise those things, he says, not to pass over them in negligence, so far ought we to be from openly violating them through pride and obstinacy. He goes on to say, for confusion in such details would become the seed of great contentions in every, if every man were allowed, as he pleased, to change matters affecting public order. For it will never happen that the same thing will please all if matters are regarded as indifferent and left to individual choice. So basically he's saying if everyone were prideful and obstinate and could choose to do what he or she wanted to do or not do, it would be chaos. Because no one would agree on what the baseline is. Why is that? Because he understood the nature of the conscience. Martin Luther famously said, the Christian individual is a completely free Lord of all, subject to none. The Christian individual is a completely dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Luther understood that God alone justifies. He was wrong about certain things, but he got justification <laughs> by faith. Okay? God alone gives us freedom of conscience. He also knew that it, because his conscience was free before God through faith in Christ, his sin was forgiven. And therefore, he was able to be a dutiful servant during his time on earth to all men. And that was not a violation of his Christian freedom in any way. Which brings us back to Paul. We look at verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all men, and he's speaking specifically that he's not um, on anyone's payroll, but I think by implication, he is referring to his freedom in Christ as well. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. Because Paul was free from everyone and free in Christ, he had no reservations whatsoever about setting aside his rights to make himself a slave to others because it, it only impacted for him the outward actions. Those things couldn't touch his conscience. 
which was captive to the word of God and to answer to God alone. So, to the Jews and those under the law, he could operate and conduct himself as one under the law. Basically, when he was around Jews, he was kosher, to put it in the vernacular. He was kosher. He didn't eat the things that offended them. He, you see him taking... Um, Timot or Titus or someone into the temple, uh, you know, to fulfill a vow in, in, in the book of Acts. You see him observing various um, things under the law. See, he said, I could do that because I know what those things are. I know that God doesn't require them. So I'm not trusting in them. I'm not looking to them. That, that, it's not affecting his conscience because he knows what those things are. He understands what's going on. So he can do that. And it's in no way a violation of his conscience. And he can say in verse 21, to those who are without law, I can be without law. Meaning when he's not around Jews, he could be non-kosher. He'd, he'd eat pork. And, you know, and then we were in Israel, you know, every, some of you have been there, you know, they don't, they don't put cheese on a hamburger. I don't know why. It's like a thing. They don't want to mix different, right? So you, you can't get a cheeseburger in Israel. Uh, I didn't flip out about that, right? Okay. Uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Right? Paul says, when I was as those under, without law, I operated those without law. To those who are weak, referring to those with sensitive conscience, he operated according to their scruples so as not to offend or tempt them to violate their conscience. And all of it, all of it, he said, was to win the more. He chose to constrain himself, to give up his rights, to accommodate himself to others in hopes that he might maintain a clear path for the message of the gospel. That he might see more souls come to Christ than if he didn't do those things. Because the gospel in and of itself is hard to hear. It's offensive. We don't need to make it more offensive before we even get the words out of our mouth by how we live. Everything Paul did, he did, verse 23, for the sake of the gospel, so that he might become a share in its eternal blessings. And he ends this section by reminding us that we should do the same. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greek, church of God, but just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. And so this, this is how we are to think about our Christian freedom. This is how we are to think about uh, our conscience before God. This is Paul's paradigm for the proper use of Christian freedom. Let's pray. Father, one thing that has been clear to me over these years of ministry that you've allowed me to uh, preach and teach your word consistently week in and week out, it has become so clear to me that so many of our um, errors theologically, practically, rise out of a, a, a haphazard and a careless study of your word and and uh, it requires us to be 
clear. It requires us to clearly define terms and clearly understand them and apply them across various contexts. And that takes time. It takes effort. It takes, we need others to help us do that. And so I pray that you would help us to make those clear distinctions, that we would rightly divide, as it were, the word of God so as to rightly represent you before the world and to live in accordance with that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, have this right attitude when it comes to our freedom in Christ and never use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another and to build one another up. Lord, help us to have that attitude and to do so, as Calvin said, with joy, with an eagerness to obey, and certainly not. The farthest thing that should be from us is to do it with pride and obstinacy to reject those things. Lord, help us to have that attitude, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.